are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. So pleased that you could join me today. I'm assuming that the audio and the video are on track. And uh, welcome. Welcome to our Thursday afternoon, or at least it's afternoon for me. One of the things I'm really grateful for on our Thursday afternoon times is that we, uh, we have an audience from all over the world. So I don't know what time zone you're in. I don't know if it's evening. I don't know if it's morning. For here, it's just about 12 o'clock in the afternoon Pacific time on the West Coast of the United States. And I'm so pleased that you could join us for our Q&A. Uh, my name is David Guzik, if we've never been introduced before. Uh, I am a pastor, although currently I'm not pastoring over a congregation, but I have some 30 years of pastoral ministry. I've been a Bible college director, uh, but if people know me outside of those roles, it might be through the online Bible commentary that I have. For more than 25 years, I've had an online Bible commentary that's completely free of charge, and uh, some people find it helpful. That's just simply what I'll say about it. And what we do on these Thursdays is we come together with our worldwide audience. Again, welcome to everybody. And with our worldwide audience, we answer questions. I begin with a lead question, and then we open it up to the questions that come in on the live chat. I do want to add welcome to our TWR360 audience. We're so pleased when you all can join us week after week. It's a great thing to have you with us. And uh, TWR360 is this marvelous ministry of Trans World Radio. That's TWR. Uh, Trans World Radio is that fantastic ministry that for decades has been reaching hard-to-reach places with the gospel and with good Bible teaching through shortwave radio. And TWR360 is their marvelous online presence. So, Welcome to our TWR360 audience. We're going to get started with our lead question today, and the lead question is simply this. Does God answer the prayers of the wicked? And um, this was simply a question that came in uh, over email or a leftover question before. I believe it was from a woman named Sherry who asked this question, and she just simply asked this. uh, Does God answer the prayers of the wicked or the prayers of sinners apart from their prayer for salvation. Now, I'm glad that uh, Sherry, I believe that was her name, I'm glad that she recognized that, that uh, God will hear a prayer for salvation from a sinner. There's no other kind of people that God could hear a prayer of salvation from. But other than that, if if someone who's not a believer uh, prays for uh, God to bless, for God to help, for God to strengthen, for God to heal, for God to protect, for God to provide. Will God hear such prayers, prayers of those who are not yet those in his family, the prayers, if we just want to use the word, the prayers of the wicked, will God do that? Well, it's a great question. And the first Bible verse that I want to get onto regarding that question is John chapter 9, verse 31. Now, I'm going to read this verse, but then I'm going to go back and set the context for it. So ready? John chapter 9, verse 31. Now, we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Now, like we often say, uh, When we study the Bible, one of the most important things in our Bible study, in our Bible reading, is context. So, who said this statement? We we know it was from the Gospel of John, John chapter 9, verse 31. Maybe this was a statement that Jesus said, but it's not. This is a statement that a man who was born blind, who had been healed, said. And the man born blind was uh, being told by the religious leaders in Jesus's day that Jesus was a sinner. And the the, uh, the man born blind is just kind of confused. He says, well, there's just one thing I don't understand. If this man, Jesus, is such a sinner, how come God hears his prayers? That's really the idea. So that statement in John chapter 9, verse 31, let me show it to you once again. Now, we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. That isn't something that Jesus said. That isn't something that God directly said. Now, the Lord says it because it's in his word. But what the Lord is saying is that this man said it. 
Now, does God hear sinners? Well, there are many passages in the Bible that tell us that God does not hear sinners. Here's one, Psalm 66, verse 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. How about that? That's pretty simple. That's pretty straightforward. This is what I'm just trying to get at. There are many passages of scripture that tell us that God is not obligated to hear the prayer of a sinner. And by understanding that, what the man born blind said in John chapter 9, verse 31, I think is valid. I think has a great point to it. But it's not an absolute true statement. You see, that man's statement in John chapter 9, verse 31, that God does not hear sinners, it was in one sense true, it was in another sense false. God is certainly under no obligation to hear the prayer of the man or the woman who's in rebellion against him. Yet, in his mercy and for his ultimately wise purpose, God may hear the unrepentant sinner. Now, in the sense that the man meant it, John 9, 31, what he said was completely true in the context of which he said it, as far as it, it, it regulated or it spoke of Jesus's own ministry. But as a blanket statement, friends, God is not obligated to hear the prayer of the wicked, but sometimes in God's grace, sometimes in his mercy, and of course, if it is... Uh, if it is working towards the accomplishment of his ultimate purpose, God may hear the prayer of the wicked. He may answer it. So if someone who's not yet a believer, maybe someone really in rebellion against God, maybe uh, they, 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 they say, well, the, the, I, ans- I asked this thing of the Lord and the Lord gave it to me. Don't automatically assume that it wasn't God. Maybe it was. But it was God showing his kindness, his mercy. God has not promised to hear the prayer of the wicked. If you want to know the kind of prayer that God promises to hear, let me read to you from John, excuse me, 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. There we read this. Now, this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. Friends, the ultimate purpose, the ultimate goal in prayer is not to impose our will upon God as if we could somehow get God to do what he want, what we want him to do. That's not the idea behind prayer. The real idea behind prayer is simply this to align ourselves with the will of our Heavenly Father and to pray what God would have us pray. If we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. That's the real goal of prayer. So, folks, I hope this is helpful for you. Again, does God hear the prayers of the wicked? No, He has not promised to. No, he's um, not obligated to, but sometimes in God's grace and mercy, he can do exactly that. All right, with that, let's go on to our questions from the live chat. Again, so pleased that you could join us here on this afternoon and wherever it is you're listening. By the way, we always love to hear where you're viewing from. And um, my moderator can perhaps weigh in on this. But I believe that we still have the system that only subscribers to our YouTube channel are able to participate in the live chat. So if you're trying to participate in the live chat and you're unable to, it may very well be because you haven't subscribed to our channel. And I guess I'm supposed to ask everybody to subscribe, press like, do all those kind of things. Listen, do them or don't do them. It's up to you. But apparently those help our channel. Uh, so, uh, if you're trying to leave something in the live chat, but have not yet subscribed, I do believe that you have to do that first. Okay. Uh, 
Here's questions from our live chat. Three questions about laying on of hands. Number one, and this is from Pio uh, Pio Squattro. Sounds Italian to me. Okay, do we need the laying on of hands to receive the Holy Spirit? Because Paul in Acts chapter 19, verse 2 says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And then verse 6 says, when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And then there's a very similar thing in Acts chapter 8, verse 17. Pio Pio Squatroa, I would simply say this, that we see in the New Testament people being filled with the Holy Spirit, sometimes with the laying of hands upon them, sometimes not. And so I don't think that it's necessary, but I do think that it's a good thing. If there's a brother or sister who's asking me that they want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, they want to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, they want to fulfill what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 5, that we should be continually being filled with the Spirit, then I want to lay a hand on their shoulder. I want to lay hands on them as I pray for them, uh, simply as a demonstration of faith, as a demonstration of a, a common bond. I'm making myself one with them in their petition. It's, Lord, we're coming together before you to ask you for this. So um, that's really the idea there. It's not necessary because we have enough examples in the New Testament of people being filled with the Spirit apart from the laying on of hands. Uh, We also have several instances, though, where people were filled with the Holy Spirit, just as you mentioned, with the laying on of hands. I I wouldn't regard as a law as something that must be done, but it seems that that's a way that God often works. And again, the significance of laying on of hands, it's not some weird transference of spiritual power or something like that. It's a sign of sympathy. It's a sign of identification. It's a sign of faith. Lord, we come together with this prayer request. So that's number one. Thank you for that question there, Pio Pio Squatro. Grandma 2 asks this, Hello, Pastor David. My husband and I have heard other pastors speak about anyone who's a believer performing the laying on of hands to heal others in the name of Jesus. What are your thoughts? Well, Grandma, too, they're getting this from the book of James, which speaks of if someone is sick, let them call for the elders of the church to come them, to anoint them with oil and with the laying on of hands, and that that person would be healed. So that's where they're getting this from. Um, What this is doing is just offering a prayer for that person to be healed. This isn't a guarantee that every person who has their hands laid on them, even if they're laid on them in faith, that every person will be healed. But it just tells us how to carry out believing prayer in those circumstances. (coughs) Excuse me. Let me say something else about that section in James where it speaks about the need uh, or, or the thing of anointing with oil. Now, if you're familiar scripturally, you would know that the anointing of oil is often emblematic of the Holy Spirit. And that's a wonderful thing. But praise the Lord for that emblem of the Holy Spirit. However, uh, it was also widely understood in the ancient world that the application of oil, especially in massages and such, had medicinal purpose. It may very well be that when James speaks in uh, chapter 5, speaking about the laying on of hands and the anointing of oil, that it also has a medicinal aspect. There could very well be the sense there, James is saying, pray for the person in faith that God would heal them and get them the best medical attention you can. I don't think that one contradicts the other in the slightest way. Thank you for that question there, Grandma, too. That's really what it's getting back to. Again, can you pray for healing for somebody without laying hands on them? Of course you can. Uh, We know from the healing ministry of Jesus and the apostles in the book of Acts that there was no one way that healing was carried out. Uh, But again, um, it's not a law, but it's just a custom that can be practiced biblically. And then number three uh, is adding something to Grandma's questions. Can we lay hands on non-Christians without them knowing, for example, a partner who needs healing? 
Um, Sharon, th- that's just another form of praying for somebody. And listen, we can pray for people without them knowing. Sure. Um, you know, I, I don't know how dramatic a person would want to be in it, but uh, we can pray for people without them knowing. And really what we're asking for is just a certain, what we're speaking about here is just a simply uh, a certain form of prayer. Prayer with the laying on of hands as a sign of identification, as a sign of sympathy, as a sign of love from the Lord. Uh, th- that's some of the significance of the laying on of hands. And we can pray for people. And I suppose at times lay hands on them and pray for them without them really knowing. Look, there's been times when I've done that. I mean, I can't remember specific situations, but I'm just aware in my memory that I've done that, that I've, I- I've laid a hand on somebody's shoulder and I prayed for them with the laying on of hands and they didn't even know I was praying for them. And uh, I-, I think that's a valid thing to do. Thanks for those questions about the laying on of hands. Okay, next question comes from George, who asks this. Pastor Guzik, I need your help in answering a question. I attend a church, and when I bring up James, faith and works, I get a cold shoulder about the works part. Yes, we have faith. However, we talk a lot, but do nothing outside the church to show our faith. Should I leave or be the example? Thank you. George, I'm shocked to hear that there's a church that's not doing everything that it should do. And George, I'm saying that with my tongue a little bit in my cheek there. I'm being just a little bit sarcastic, please, not to write you, but just to recognize um, every church is going to fall short. Uh, Every church is going to be deficient in some way. If you feel that you are attending the perfect church, the first thing I say is praise the Lord. That's a wonderful thing. How great it is to be at a church that you think is healthy and good and just right on and loving the Lord. That is a wonderful, beautiful, powerful thing. That's number one. But I would say this too, if you're attending a church that just is is perfect in every way, um, it's not going to stay that way. Look, I believe that there are seasons at a church where it may feel like everything is perfect. Again, Praise the Lord, if that's the case. But, you know, those seasons don't last forever. If they last a year, if they last 10 years, praise the Lord for that. But look, we're all people and problems are going to come in by people. So, George, let me just get to a, a direct answer to your question. I think you should go to the best church that's in the area that you will, as a practicality, drive to. In other words, if you're not going to drive three hours to church, then you need to figure out the circle to where you will drive, to how, where you can travel to, and pick the best church within that area that you'll go to, and commit yourself to that church. Now, this church that you're speaking of right now, this church that seems to be kind of deficient on the living out their Christian life, George, that might be the best church within an hour drive. I mean, again, I I don't know what that circumference is for you, but I'll just say an hour drive. George, that might be the best church for you in an hour drive, for you and your family. If that's the case, then you should commit yourself to that church, acknowledging its weaknesses and uh, asking God if he might help you to be a good influence for that church, for the areas where they are weak and deficient. But really, George, I, I think that's the thing for you to do. Just prayerfully, intelligently discern, is this the best church for me and my family within the hour's drive or whatever it would be that you're willing to make? If, if it's not, then go find that church. If it is, then stick where you're at, acknowledging the difficulties and believing, as you said, that maybe God would have you be a light there. Hope that's helpful for you, George. Blessings to you. Um, Leo asked this question. Question. I noticed that the mountains are very prevalent in Scripture. Mount Zion, Mount Moriah, Mount of Olives, Mount of Transfiguration. These are just a few. What are the thoughts on why God seems to use mountains? Leo, that's a great question. I think a lot of it just has to do with the geography of what we call the Holy Land, the land of Israel. The land of Israel is marked by many prominent mountains. Now, again... You could debate whether these would be technically mountains or high hills in every case. 
but we would call them mountains, or the Bible often calls them mountains. And that's just the geography of the area. Um, if where the Bible deals with, with different areas of geography, it's going to note those features of geography. There are some people who try to argue that mountains speak of governments in the Bible, uh, and that if there's ever a mountain used as a symbol, that it's speaking of a government in some way or another. I, I don't think that that's true. I think sometimes the Bible uses mountains as pictures of government. Yes, sure, sometimes. But I don't think it's like this consistent biblical idiom. We've got to be careful with this. Sometimes people try to extend biblical idioms or illustration beyond their appointed bounds. Let me give you an example. There are a few places in the Old Testament where Israel is likened to a basket of figs or something associated with figs. There's a few clear places in the Old Testament where that's the case. Some people have taken that and said, basically, every time figs are mentioned, it's speaking of Israel. Every time a fig tree is mentioned, it's speaking of Israel. And friends, I just think that that's bad biblical interpretation. You got to take it by the context. Uh, do figs or fig tree sometimes illustrate Israel? Yes. Every time in the scriptures? No. You just need to look to context to see where it does and where it doesn't. The same thing true being for mountains. There's this, uh, something else, one other thing I'd say about this, Leo, is that mountains are striking. Is there something amazing about looking both at a mountain from a distance? It's just something very stirring, very striking about that. But there's also something very stirring and striking is being up on a mountain and looking down. And so the striking nature and character and visual aspect, both looking up at at a distance and looking down from and being upon a mountain, both of those things are very striking and I think very um, revealing about how the Bible speaks to us as just flesh and blood human beings. So thanks for that, Leo. Appreciate the question. Next question comes from uh, Tunnel Banan, Shugotre. Hello from Sweden. Hey, son. Sveria. Um, here's a question. Does a certain YouTuber blaspheme the Holy Ghost when he mocks repentance, calls Jesus a devil, and says that you can take the mark of the beast and still go to heaven? Okay, Tunnel Banan, Shugotre. I I don't know of this specific YouTuber that you're talking about, and honestly... I don't think I'm interested in knowing about him. So taking it just from how you describe him in your question, let me read it again. A certain YouTuber, does he blaspheme the Holy Ghost when he mocks repentance, calls Jesus a devil, and says you can take the mark of the beast and still go to heaven? Uh, I would say, yes, he's blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And he's in danger of damnation as he not only believes and proclaims those things for himself, but seeks to persuade others towards those things. Can you imagine the guilt upon a person who not only sends their own soul to hell, that's a tragedy and a crime enough, but someone who's actively working to send other souls to hell. And just because they may be clever or humorous, or interesting as they do it, it doesn't excuse what they're doing. So just from the way that you describe this one to me, uh, I would say, yes, they are blaspheming the Holy Spirit and very much running risk of damnation, not only for what they're doing to their own soul, but what they're doing to the souls of others. Thank you for that question. Uh, David asked this question. How can we know if promises like John chapter 1, verse 9, be strong and of good courage, are not only valid in the specific contest, but also for us? Okay, David, that's a great question. Uh, we're reading Joshua chapter 1, and we read in there where God speaks to Joshua and tells Joshua, um, be strong and of good courage. Uh, every place I've given you of the land. And God repeats that idea of Joshua being strong and of good courage 
I think God repeats it three times, and then the people of Israel repeat it to Joshua again at the end of the chapter. I'm kind of studying Joshua right now, so some of these things are fresh in my mind. Okay, so we we read all that in Joshua chapter 1, and we wonder, is this God's promise to me? Is God promising me that I can be filled, that I should uh, have strength and good courage? Is that God's command to me as well? Okay, so we absolutely know that it was God's command, God's promise to Joshua. Is it also God's command or promise to us? And I would say this is how we can know. First of all, are there other passages of the Bible that clearly speak to believers in general saying similar things? And I would say there are. You know, Paul writes this things, uh, live like men, quit yourselves as men. That's kind of the old King James rendering of it. Act like men, be like soldiers, uh, be like uh, the athlete who boldly presses on, who needs strength to do what he does. So the ideas of being, of having strength and courage, those ideas are found other places. So it's not weird or strange to say, Well, God spoke this to Joshua, but I know that he speaks similar things to believers in other places, believers like me. So this is also God's word to me. That's one aspect to do it. Here's another way to do it, is to realize that God may quicken a verse, a promise in the scriptures that was made to somebody else, but the Holy Spirit may put his finger on it in the life of the individual believer and say, that's for you. Now you say, whoa, 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 David. Um, Can't that be abused? Yes, it can be abused. Of course. Look, just about anything can be abused. So the the idea that, um, but I don't think it takes away from the fundamental idea that the Holy Spirit can and sometimes will take a promise that was given to another person in the scriptures, and by the power of the Spirit, he will make that promise, that verse, alive to us, and God will communicate to us in some way. I'm not saying a voice from heaven, but God will communicate to us in some way and say, that promise is for you. May I just say, uh, David, that I believe God's done that in my life a few times. Promises that were made for other people in the scriptures God has said, these, that promise is for you, David Guzik, in your calling, in your life, in your ministry. And I've seen those play out. I've seen them play out and be fulfilled in marvelous ways. So um, that's one aspect. Is, is the promise made to somebody else like a promise God makes to believers generally? That's number one. Number two, is the promise quickened to my heart made alive to my heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the second thing. And then a third way is simply this, is that does this promise show something in the character of God that fits for believers today? Let let me give you my favorite example of this. It's that great verse in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. You know, the great refrigerator magnet verse. Um, For I know the thoughts that I have for you, the thoughts and plans I don't know how come I can't remember it specifically. Um, thoughts of a hope and a purpose for you, a future and a joy. God makes that promise. And now look, that promise was made to Israel, m- most relevant to their restoration from the Babylonian exile. That was the future and the hope that God had for Israel. So, so we understand that promise was not specifically made to the people of God in general, It was made to Israel in a certain context. But this is what we know. We know that God isn't less generous under the new covenant than the old. It's not like God says, well, you know, I had a future and a hope for my people under the old covenant. But for you in the new covenant, no future, no hope. Now, God doesn't say that. So there's also ways that we can simply move from understanding, uh, yes, this was a promise made to God's people under the old covenant, but it has relevance and fulfillment for believers under the new covenant because of what it tells us just about the nature and the character of God. 
So really, that's sort of a long answer to a very good question there, David. I would say on those three points, um, uh, uh, first of all, uh, discerning whether or not it's it's made to us and if it's made and, and given to us in some other way in a passage clearly. Um, number two, whether it's quickened to us, made alive by the Holy Spirit. And then number three, if it's just within the character of God to act that way towards his people under the new covenant, under the present dispensation. Hope that's helpful for you there, David. Next question comes from Vincent. Here he says, Hello, Pastor. What's the most effective way of witnessing to Muslims in multicultural societies like Africa? Vincent, um, let me just be very straightforward with you, brother. I don't think I have a good answer to your question. Because I've never lived in a multicultural society close to Muslims. I've lived in a multicultural society close to people from other backgrounds. But but I've never lived in a multicultural society close to Muslims. And so I don't have the same personal frame of reference that you would. But I'll tell you what I've heard from different people. And again, I'm just passing this on, not as an expert, but just what I've heard from other people. First of all, they relate that... Uh, Evangelism among Muslims is very relational. It is a tremendous risk and a great sacrifice for Muslims many times, not in every occasion, but many times. It's a great risk and sacrifice for them to declare allegiance to Christianity and to Jesus Christ. And they're not going to do that oftentimes without real strong relationship. And so uh, it has to be patient, has to be heavily founded on relationship. That's what some people have told me. And then here's another thing that people have told me is that sometimes effective evangelism with Muslims can be made by simply speaking to them about what the Quran says about Jesus. The Quran has a fair amount to say about Jesus. And, for example, the Quran says that Jesus was a prophet. Well, if they're going to agree that Jesus is a prophet, and, of course, it means that Jesus is a true prophet, not a false prophet, then let's read what Jesus says. Let's go to the book that talks about what this prophet Jesus says. So, uh, taking what the Quran says about Jesus and using that as a way to reach Muslims, that can be a very effective form of evangelism. So, Vincent, I'm just going to apologize. Not having the life experience of living in a multicultural society close to Muslims, I can't answer from my own experience, but those are two things that uh, believers that I have known who have lived in such societies have told me. The emphasis of relationship and the uh, strategy of starting with what the Quran says about Jesus and using that as an entry point. I hope that's helpful for you there. And uh, I'm so pleased that you're listening from Africa, Vincent. Next question comes from Kathleen, who asks, Pastor, what can a person do if there's no churches in an area that are truly Bible-believing? I do listen to churches out of my area online, but is that enough? Thank you. Uh, Kathleen, it's not the best I think anybody who is involved in online church would have to honestly say it, it's not the best. It's not ideal, um, but it, it's better than nothing. Um, real in-person church is better than online church. Online church is better than no church. So th- that's just simply the way I, I would state it. But Kathleen, uh, I don't know where you live. <laughs> I certainly haven't visited the churches that are nearby you. I, I, I would just want you to, to examine again. And again, I, I feel bad saying this because, you know, it kind of comes off as me saying, you don't know what you're talking about. And I, I, I really have no way to judge that. But I, I would just want you to be careful about, um, are the churches in your area really all unfaithful? all so compromised that you couldn't belong to them. Now, Kathleen, maybe you've searched that out and thought carefully through it, and the answer that you say, David, yes, absolutely, I know that they are. Okay, well, great. I I can't say anything against it. 
But if I were speaking to someone in your situation, I'd say, are you sure about that? Are you sure about that? But if all you can attend is online church because there are no faithful fellowships in your area, then um, do that. And, and, um, okay, here's the progression. Um, A great local church that you're committed to, that's the best. A mediocre local church that you're committed to, that's second best. A kind of okay local church that you're committed to, that's third best. A good online church that you that you attend, so to speak, with other believers. That's better than online church all by yourself. I just want you to think about that. Um, if we're talking about better and worse with churches, if you were going to attend, so to speak, online church because that was the best option available to you, it would be better to attend it with the company of other people. So you could at least have something like the fellowship. I'm not even saying it's it's the same fellowship as there is going to a good church in person, but at least it would be something better. Hope that's helpful for you, Kathleen. Thank you for the question. And again, I I, I apologize. You know, I I, I just kind of have this sense that sometimes, well, David, how can you say that? You don't, But I don't know the situation. So I kind of have to ask and cover all the bases when I reply. Thank you for that, Kathleen. Daniel has a question. He asked, Pastor David, I've noticed that at time it feels like our church idolizes the leader of the church. I'm wondering, how can I discern whether this church is the place where God wants me to be? Okay, Daniel, um, we really got this theme working through a lot of the questions, and I love that. Daniel, the kind of the quick answer to your question is simply this. You, you'll know, or one way you can know, is by simply asking, is there a better church that you can attend? Is there a healthier church that you can attend? I, I have no problem with somebody saying, okay, ABC church in our community, it's good, uh, it's got some problems, um, but it's okay. But XYZ church in our community is really a better, healthier church. It's a better church for my family. We're going to move from ABC Church to XYZ Church. Again, I'm not saying people have to do that, but I understand that. You, you, you should attend the healthiest church. So, Daniel, um, if you see things in the church leadership, something that really kind of idolizes and exalts the leaders, and folks, there's just no place for that. Can I, can I just appeal to you as a community here? Here we are together. We're here with our, our YouTube channel, our, our YouTube family. I, I don't know how many people are online right now, but if you're not online, maybe you're going to see this later on. You're, you're just part of it together with our little Thursday question and answer YouTube family. Please, can we just move away from the celebrity Christian kind of thing? Friends, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And um, I'm conscious of this. Because with the gifts and the callings that God has given me, some, sometimes I'm up in front of people. Sometimes I'm, I'm speaking at a church and there's 500 or 1,000 or, or, or 3,000 people there, you know, depending on which church invites me and such. And there is this inescapable tendency to look at the guy on the platform, whether he's playing a guitar, whether he's preaching, oh, wow, he must be something really special. Uh, he may, must be something really holy or gifted. And folks, I'm just here to tell you, it's just not that way. We're just all serving the Lord. That's how it should be. I'll serve in the callings and gifts that God has given me. Please, you serve in the calling and gifts that God has given you. And as we just all do that together, then the work of the Lord is going to happen. We don't need Christian celebrities we don't need to idolize Christian leaders. Friends, you just know, the higher people puff you up, that's the, the, that's the further you're going to be cast down when the bubble bursts. And we just don't need that. So, Daniel, I'm very sensitive to this difficulty that you're speaking of. And I would just want to simply say to folks, um, let, let's just work against, don't idolize your pastor or your worship leader, or whatever. Don't think of him as a celebrity. 
Uh, Just think of him as a brother in Christ who's doing the Lord's work. And then why don't you be a brother or sister in Christ who's doing the Lord's work? And then you know what? Then we're all together on equal ground before the Lord. I'll just suggest something to you. Maybe in the work God has given you to do, maybe you're being a lot more uh, faithful. You might even be in a lot more fruitful than a Mr. Celebrity Pastor who gets all the attention. Uh, We just don't need this. We don't need the celebrity thing in the slightest. We just need to serve and honor the Lord together. There's so much more joy in that. Who wants the pressure of being a celebrity? Who wants the pressure of being, uh, you know, uh, this, this, with all the expectations that come with it? Okay, anyway, spoken enough. Daniel, I, I hope that's helpful for you. Um, if you can find a better church, that's okay. Um, if not, then just be careful with uh, these things in your own heart, in your own mind. Thanks very much. All right. Uh, Shalayan, I hope that's your name. Let me look here. Yeah, Shayan. I'm sorry. Uh, Larson. Let's just say this. I, I believe that's a woman's name. I, I'm not sure if, if it is. I'm be- so let's just say uh, uh, Sister Larson. Let's just say that. Um, does the Holy Spirit leave? Here's her question. Does the Holy Spirit leave us when we grieve him with sin and then come back when we repent? Or is he in us always, but feels separated because of sin and fills us again when we repent or pray? Well, Sister Larson, again, I I don't want to butcher the pronunciation of your first name. Sister Larson, let me just say this. Uh, You had it right or more right the second way that you stated it. We shouldn't think that the Holy Spirit is like in a revolving door in our life. You know, he's in and out, in and out. You've been a good boy, he's with you. You've been a bad boy, he's gone. No, it, it just doesn't work like that. Um, God doesn't leave us. The Holy Spirit doesn't leave us when we sin. But there's a dynamic of fellowship that we aren't enjoying when we're in sin. So we're not talking about a person losing their salvation We're not talking about a person losing the presence of the Lord, but there is a dynamic of fellowship with God that um, is affected by our sin. John talks about this in 1 John, um, that when we walk in darkness, we're not walking in fellowship with God, period. So you, you can't claim to be in real fellowship with God and be living out habitual sin in your life. There's an effect on fellowship. Now, the same writer, the same author of the, of the Gospel of John, the book of Revelation, 1 John, that same author, also said this, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's 1 John 1, 9. Praise the Lord for that. But no, we shouldn't think that the Holy Spirit's sort of like on a revolving door, uh, constantly coming and going in our life in that sense. But rather, there is a dynamic of fellowship with God that can be affected by our sin, by our—it's more than sin. It's rebellion. It's the unwillingness to get things right with God. That's what really sinks us before the Lord. So uh, I hope that's helpful for you there, Sister Larson. Let me go on to the next question here from Found Sheep. Hello, Pastor. What is your view on Calvinism? Well found, sheep. Uh, it's funny. I was just talking with a fella about this the other day. Uh, I am not a Calvinist. I don't believe in much of what John Calvin taught. Although, look, there's obviously much that he taught that I do believe in. He taught a lot of doctrine, a lot of good doctrine. But on those distinctive doctrines of Calvinism, sometimes expressed as the five points of Calvinism, tulip. Uh, That's an acronym, total depravity, uh, unconditional election, limited atonement, uh, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. Um, I would would quibble with those, or at least sometimes how those ideas are often held by Calvinists. I I also disagree with the idea that uh, regeneration comes before faith. 
I just don't think that's the way the Bible presents it. Um, but anyway, I'm not a Calvinist, but neither am I an anti-Calvinist. And I hope that doesn't confuse people so much. And what I mean is, I, I'm not riding some crusade of um, looking to see how I can defeat or strike down the Calvinists. Listen, I, I'm here in a room with a lot of books, and a lot of the authors of these books have been Calvinists of some stripe or another. I, I've read too much. I've been blessed too much. I've benefited too much from Reformed and Calvinistic. By the way, Reformed and Calvinistic, they're not exactly the same thing, but a lot of times those terms are used synonymously. But I've been too blessed by many Calvinistic authors and, and writers and commentators for, for me to have no appreciation for them. So I'm not a Calvinist, but I, I'm not an anti-Calvinist. I, I disagree with them on some points, but look, I, I don't know if I could find much of anybody in, in church history. Again, all the commentaries that I read, all the research that I do for my biblical studies, I, it would be pretty rare for me to come across a person where I say, I agree with each and everything that they teach. I, I just, that would be a rarity. As I think that's true for everybody. I don't think I'm unique in that. I just think that's how it is. So I'm not a Calvinist. I'm not anti-Calvinist. I, I just try to be very real about some of the places where we would disagree. Here's one of the knocks I have against Reformed theology or Calvinistic theology. And this is kind of a practical matter more than a theological matter. I don't think that they stress human responsibility enough. Now, they believe in it. If, if you were to try to accuse a Calvinist or a Reformed theologian, oh, you don't believe in human responsibility. No, 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 no. They, they have the right answer. They can check the right box on that answer. But effectively, in their preaching and teaching, they often effectively ignore it. And, and so it isn't just enough to believe in human responsibility as a box that you check. You need to preach and teach believing that humans are responsible for their sin and be able to have an explanation for that. And I would say the same thing to some raving Arminian who says, um, uh, who denies in some way the sovereignty of God. Or maybe they say they believe in the sovereignty of God, but you would never know it from their preaching and teaching. No, it's not enough to believe it. You, you need to have it come through in your preaching and teaching. Let me put it to you this way, found sheep. Let me say something about uh, John, excuse me, John, about Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon, a great preacher, somebody I really respect and admire, who himself was a very decided Calvinist. Matter of fact, uh, kind of young in his ministry, he would say very bold things like, Calvinism is the gospel and the gospel is Calvinism. But there were other places and it's not my place here to play dueling Spurgeon quotes. But there are places where Spurgeon said things like this. Am I a Calvinist or am I an Arminian? It depends on what question you ask me. If you ask me why a man is saved, I'll give you the Calvinistic answer. It's only due to the glory of God. If you ask me why a man is damned, I'll give you the Arminian answer. He said, it's fully his own responsibility. He said, I don't care about which category you try to put me in. I just try to stay close to my Bible. And friends, that's really my heart. I don't really care what categories people put me in. I've had people, especially when I was pastoring a church, I had people who thought I was a raving Calvinist. And I had other people who thought I was a raving Arminian. And you know what? I would be just fine with that, depending on what passage of scripture they heard me expound. Um, again, I, I just think that we need to stay close to the Bible and not be so concerned about checking theological boxes to see what club we belong to. So I don't know, um, bound sheep, if that helps you, but that's some of my perspective. All right, let me go on to the next question from Alfredo, who asks, what are your thoughts on the little God's doctrine? Is it similar to the Eastern Orthodox concept of theosis? Okay, Alfredo, I'm going to have to plead a little bit of ignorance here. I'm not exactly 
sure what's meant by the little gods doctrine. I, I, I'm wondering if it has to do with the sons of God idea, you know, expressed in some of the Psalms, uh, maybe put out by Michael Heisler, uh, that there's these deity-like beings in the universe um, and that the scripture deals with them. It's the council of the gods, uh, this or that. Um, I, I don't put a lot of weight in that. I, I just don't see it. I don't see it demanded by the scriptures. I think um, I think there's a danger in approaching the scriptures wanting to find too much novelty, too much new stuff, too much special stuff. So um, I don't put a lot of stock in that. And really, um, Alfredo, I just got to be straight with you. If you want to uh, send to our moderator some things that you would suggest that I take a look at or read or whatever, I'd be interested in doing that. But I really just don't have a lot of a place to, to talk about that. Uh, Tressa asks, is it biblical for a pastor to say that only God can correct him and has no accountability? Tressa, the answer to that question is no. It is not biblical for a pastor to say that. We all need to be accountable. Every church leader needs someone who can look him in the eye and say, Pastor, you're wrong about this, and that the pastor will listen to them um, and take it seriously. I, I'm not saying that the pastor would agree with them on every occasion, but that the pastor will at least with, whoa, if this person speaks this to me, I got to pump the brakes. I got to slow down and I got to think very carefully about this because I may be wrong about this. Um, accountability is important for everybody. And unaccountable leaders are always a danger. They're a danger to themselves. They're a danger to their congregations. They're a danger to the broader work of God. Um, big danger signal when somebody is unaccountable to anybody. Uh, Larson asks, Hi, Pastor David, can you please talk about 1 Corinthians 11, 12, 27, eating the bread, drinking the cup, in the context of kids who get given communion Sunday school but don't understand it, is it harmful for them? Uh, Larson, um, yeah, I, I would be among those who say that children should not partake of the bread and the cup of communion until they are able to have at least a basic understanding of it and a basic reverence for it. But if children can have that basic understanding and reverence for it, then I would have no problem with them receiving communion. I, I just don't think that it's it's helpful. Um, there's we we have to get away from emphasizing any kind of power that would be in the ritual itself. The power is in faith, and faith has some understanding of what it's believing in. Not a blind faith, not a weird faith. So th that's how I would ask, answer that, uh, Larson. Texas asks this question. Uh, do you see Joel chapter 2, verse 25 as applying to believers today? Um, here's Joel 2, 25. So I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the crawling locust, the consuming locust, and the chewing locust, the great army which I sent among you. Well, Texas lioness, yes, in principle, it does apply today. Now, let, let's go back to the context of Joel. Joel prophesied and spoke about these great plagues of locust that God was sending upon his people as judgment, as correction. And Joel looked forward to the restoration that God would bring after God disciplined them. Okay, so you got God's correction, God's discipline, uh, and then you have God's restoration. Well, again, the idea that our God is a restoring God, that he's a God of restoration, we can believe that, we should believe that. That's the kind of Lord we serve. And so uh, I really don't have any problem with somebody relying on that idea. I, I don't have any problem with somebody having that confidence that, yes, um, 
God is that kind of redeeming God, that kind of restoring God. And so we're going to believe that God does that, that God restores in just that sort of way. So um, really, that, that's the idea here, that um, God is a restoring God. That's what's displayed there in that passage of Joel chapter 2. And, and sort of as a, as a habit of prayer, as a colloquialism, we'll pray sometimes, Lord, please restore the years that the locusts have eaten. And the idea is there, God, there's been a lot of damage that's been done. And maybe that damage has been your righteous correction, your righteous judgment. But God, you are rich in your ability to restore and rebuild. We call upon you, Lord, to do that. That's simply the idea there. So I think that's a, a fine way to respond. Okay, we got now our lightning round. Better take a drink of water. Get through the lightning round. Thank you, everybody, for hanging with us through our q and I just want you to know before we leave, I sure enjoy these times. And before I begin and embark on our lightning round, where we finish our program today with a bunch of questions that I'm going to try to answer briefly, um, you might want to check out our commentary, our commentary, my commentary. I have a verse-by-verse -verse commentary on the entire Bible that some people find helpful. It's been on the internet for more than 25 years. And um, yeah, a fair amount of people use it. So if it's helpful to you, I hope it's a blessing to you. And don't forget our app. The Enduring Word app is an amazing app. You will appreciate the Enduring Word app. It's fantastic. And I'm very happy to say, I think I said this last week, but I'll say it again this week. Um, in October, just a few weeks ago, for the first time ever, we had more people use the commentary from the app than they did from the website. So, wow, what a big thing. Paul, Diane, I, I don't know if you're listening, Paul and Diane, but thank you for all the great work that you do on the app. It's such, such a blessing. All right, lightning round. Here we go. Ready? <clears throat> Some asks, what does the Bible say about relationships that are both God-loving people but have had sex before marriage? Not frequently, though. Uh, Some, it, it says it's a sin, but the Bible says that if we confess and repent of our sin, God will cleanse us and, and, and that we can move on from it. So repentance and confession, regard the sin as sin and something that needs to be confessed and repented of, and, uh, and they could do that. So yes, it's sin, but uh, God is gracious to forgive the repentant who come and put their trust in Jesus and who he is and what he did for us, especially what he did for us at the cross to pay the penalty for those sins. So yes, these are sins, but they're sins that can be forgiven in Jesus Christ. Next question from Alfredo. Question, where were the three, were the three wise men part of the Persian religion of Zoroaster? Um, Alfredo, maybe, but there is some interesting tradition that Daniel, the prophet, in his own day, established this group of the Magi. And these were people who no doubt had some influence from Persian religions, such as Zoroasterism. But they also understood the Hebrew scriptures and were on the lookout for the signs that would indicate the Messiah, which is why they saw the star and were guided by it. So I, I am a little bit partial to those traditions that uh, the Magi were an order founded or strongly influenced by Daniel, the prophet. Uh, and then it was several hundred years after him that they actually came to Jerusalem in the days of Jesus. Uh, Christine says, asks, can the devil enter you when you are Holy Spirit filled? Uh, Christine, not to possess you. Uh, the devil can influence a person to whatever degree they might allow it, but not to possess them. Demonic possession uh, is something that, well, God doesn't share uh, the habitation of a human body with the demonic spirit. So if a person is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, they can't be possessed, but they can be influenced in a very negative way by the presence and the power of demonic spirits. Um, Mary Mary asks, I would like more information about replacement theology and lost tribes. Uh, Mary Mary, replacement theology is sort of a somewhat inaccurate term, but it's used to describe those who believe that the church 
fulfills Israel or replaces Israel. Or sometimes people say, well, it's Jesus who fulfills and replaces Israel. Look, I, I, I don't buy either of it. God has a place for Israel in his unfolding plan of the ages up until the glorious return of Jesus Christ and what I would consider even into the millennial kingdom. The scriptures just speak about this. It's clear. It, it, is, it just lays it out. And the most clear, straightforward understanding of Scripture just simply tells us that this is the fact, this is the truth, this is how the Scriptures roll out. So, um, that's what replacement theology is. I think it's a biblical error. Uh, The lost tribes, God promises that they will be regathered in Israel, and I think that we indeed see something of that now, that the Jewish people who do live in Israel, even though that's not a majority of Jews worldwide— But the Jewish people that do live in Israel today, I think, uh, represent all the 12 tribes. That In that sense, there's no lost tribes. Uh, They still have some ethnic or cultural Jewish identity. Next question comes from Banjo. Hello from Garner, North Carolina. Do you have any encouragement from the Bible and perhaps life experience of feeling rejected by others in dating relationships and how to be encouraged and move on? Well, Banjo, I'm sorry to hear it. Um... Look, the, these things can be devastated. Um, when, we're, when we're seeking love, when we're pursuing romance, there's an aspect of that that's putting our heart and our feelings on the line, so to speak. And to have that disappointed is, um, it feels really grievous. So I'm super sorry to hear about that, other than just to say that you should take encouragement and confidence that it is God's will for most people to get married, to have families, to have children. Uh, of course, not everybody. The Bible speaks clearly about this, that there's God has a place for uh, th- those who aren't married, those who are, are single for whatever reason. But for most people, it's God's will for them. So I, I think that if you have the desire for this, you could say, Lord, I'm just going to take confidence in, in your general promise for humanity. And I fit into that general promise And, um, you know, Banjo, without trying to get all either Shakespearean or sentimental about this, there is something true about what Shakespeare wrote, that it is better to have loved and lost than to have never loved at all. Um, Even though there's a pain in love, even though there's a giving that can be hurt in love, that, that really is to be preferred to never experiencing that at all. Hope that makes some sense to you there, uh, Banjo. Charlie asks... Uh, You taught me a lot about the book of Jeremiah. I've been a Christian for 10 years. Will I go to heaven if I keep believing? Yes, Charlie. Um, If your trust is in Jesus Christ, is in who he is and what he did, especially what he did at the cross and in his resurrection, uh, then Charlie, if you're not, if you've given up on trying to save yourself and you look to Jesus to save you by everything he is and everything he's done, Charlie, your salvation is secure in him and you will go to heaven. So you can take your rest in that. Um, Scott asks, when was Jesus aware of his mission to die for humanity's sins as a toddler, young teen, or adult? Thanks. Well, Scott, first of all, the scriptures don't really tell us exactly. I I would say that by the time Jesus was 12, when he was left at the temple and he was disputing with the religious leaders there at the temple, and he said, don't you know that I had to be about my father's business, uh, that that was true up to that time. So uh, that even at that age, Jesus had an awareness of his calling of who he was and what God had given him to do. Um, Stephen asks a question. What are your thoughts on elders not having a wife or children? I've heard some party argue against this acceptable, but I can't reconcile this with the scriptures that I've read. Well, Stephen, um, I, I think that it's possible to take those lists in... Um, 1 Timothy and Titus, in a legalistic kind of way. Um, Yeah, of course it's possible to take those lists and ignore them. And look, let's be honest, those lists are more ignored than they are uh, embraced legalistically. But I don't think we have to make either mistake. And since Jesus did, in some sense, sanctify the unmarried state by himself remaining unmarried and and confirming that again through Paul, who at least in the years of his ministry was unmarried. 
I don't think how we could deny a church leadership position to either Paul or Jesus. And so really, that phrase in 1 Timothy that speaks that he should be the husband of one wife, the idea of that in the Greek phrasing is a one-woman man, that he shouldn't be flirtatious, that he shouldn't have a roving eye, that he shouldn't be focusing his romantic attention in inappropriate places. But I don't think that it's a requirement that that elder or leader or pastor, whatever you would say, have a wife, uh, but rather that he has his romantic impulses, so to speak, uh, under the control, under the uh, control of the Holy Spirit in his life. So, Stephen, that's just how I would take that. And then finally, from Juan Carlos, who asked this question. Hi, Pastor Ed. Can you explain why some pastors scream loudly rather than talk softly in an order? I'm having difficulty staying focused to hear the message when I experience this. Oh, Juan Carlos. Juan Carlos, sometimes I get comments from people on our YouTube channel. And uh, usually it's about a sermon that's been posted. They say, and, and they'll comment something like this. Would you stop yelling? Because Juan Carlos, sometimes I get excited. Listen, I love talking to people about God's word. I love talking to people about God's truth. And, and I do get animated and emphatic. But, but I do agree that there's a point where that's excessive. Maybe at times I have been excessive. I'm hopefully not or not often. But um, sometimes pastors scream loudly because they're legitimately excited and passionate. But Juan Carlos, sometimes they speak loudly or yell or whatever because they just think it's emphatic. It's the way to make their point. And I, I think those pastors need to know that, uh, yes, that is a way to make a point, but it'll wear your listeners out, number one. And then number two, uh, it's just, I don't know, it, it's kind of showy. So I, I prefer preachers and pastors who can speak quite passionately at certain points, but then also know how to speak in, in a more conversational way. I think, I think both things can be true. Uh, but yeah, I don't want, if you're talking about me, sometimes I do that. But again, if it's at such a pitch of, of, uh, of volume and intensity and that all the time, I don't think that's helpful in preaching ministry. Thank you for that, Juan Carlos. And thank you to all of you for your time uh, with us here today. It's been a great, great day having all your questions and all your feedback. So pleased that you could join us. Moderator, a great big thank you for your work today. And again, I'm just super, super pleased that you all could join us. Uh, what a blessing time it is. So again, thanks for joining us. We're going to sign off now. And God willing, and if we live, I'll be back with you next Thursday, and we can enjoy another time together. God bless you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.